Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back today with a story called Some Children Wander by Mistake. This one's by John Connolly. It was published in 2004. This story was nominated by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. And it's the first story by John Connolly that we're doing on Elder Sign, but we have already actually done a John Connolly story. We did his uh, really cool story, The New Daughter on Patreon. I mean, I say cool, but actually it was a creepy, creepy story. I mean, we did that almost <laughs> a year ago and it has stuck with me. And um, yeah, uh, I loved that one. And I love this one too. Yeah, it was a great, uh, great changeling story. I guess that's a spoiler, but you should read it. In fact, you should probably get Nocturnes by John Connolly. That's the collection we're reading everything in. The New Daughter was also made into a film starring Kevin Costner. And I think we both listened to that soundtrack because it was by the guy who did the soundtrack for Pan's Labyrinth. And we both really liked that. So another <laughs> recommendation, maybe not for the story, but for the, the soundtrack itself. But yeah, we're here today to talk about this other story about Children, uh, not a daughter though in this one. So Glenn, let's get right into some children wander by mistake. Right. The the child who is the the protagonist, the main character of this story is William. William is 10 and he lives in Northern England. He's a bit of a nerd. He doesn't have many friends. Uh, bullies at school are a real concern for him. And so when he sees the posters advertising the imminent arrival of a circus from Europe for one night only, he's pretty excited. Because the thing is, he's never seen a circus. There just hasn't been one in his town since he was born, though his parents like to tell him about the time they went to the circus while his mother was pregnant with him and he kicked her when the clowns first appeared. This is something of a, a family story, a family joke for them. And now he's going to get the chance to see a circus for himself. And what's even better, this one night only show is the night of his 10th birthday. William is so excited, in fact, that he rides his bike around looking for the people who are hanging up these advertising posters. And when he finds them, he talks with the circus ringmaster, who's a, a tall man with a great mustache and a thick continental accent of some sort. When William admits that he's never been to the circus, the ringmaster gives him three tickets, uh, one for himself and then one for each of his parents. And, uh, don't worry about how he knows that William doesn't have any siblings. Uh, just just overlook that entirely for right now. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's a one night only performance of the Circus Caliban. So we do not want to miss this. Also, William wants to make sure that there will be clowns. And of course there will be clowns. It isn't a circus if there aren't any clowns. Connolly is doing a lot of great stuff here. First of all, Circus Caliban, great name for a circus, maybe even a creepy circus. <laughs> that name Caliban is taken from, you know, Shakespeare's work, The Tempest. It's the name for the monstrous son of uh, the witch in that in that play. So something's already going on here with this. I also love this uh, 10th birthday, which always feels like a sort of magical coming of age age in boys' stories. You know, it's like just before puberty hits and, and just before kind of the realities of, of life set in and it's this time of, of magic and expectation. And it's awesome. And that gives this story a kind of fairy tale feel almost. And William, we get some characterization for him uh, early on in this story. He's already a bit of a clown, we learn. He's eager to please those who bully him, but it's because he's got some dark impulse to make these bullies laugh. And the way that Connolly characterizes William, 
lets us know as readers that William has some of the characteristics that maybe describe what we fear most about clowns. I mean, I'm not afraid of clowns, but it looks like what Conley is tapping into here <laughs> is the idea that someone who can make us laugh has some sort of power over us. And that's what William is trying to unlock in himself in order to avoid being bullied and then also maybe to try to make some friends. Right. We're never actually going to meet any of these bullies. I mean, this is going to be a hyper-focused story on William going to the circus and the weird thing that is going to happen at that circus. But Connolly is a master of, in just really a, a paragraph, telling us everything that we need to know about William's situation in his various communities, what his family is like, what school is like for him, and the way that he is trying to deal with being bullied, and also the way that he's trying to be good at being a nerd in school as well. Connolly gives us all of that basically in one sentence, and it tells us everything that we need to know about this character. It's amazing, amazing work. It really is amazing. And another amazing bit of writing, I mean, there's a lot of great writing in this story, is the opening, the way that Connolly establishes the setting in this story. He describes the dreary north and the sort of town where you can see like half of Styx and half of REO Speedwagon play each other's <laughs> greatest hits at the fairground like every five years if you're lucky. I mean, that's the town we all grew up in, right? <laughs> but um, it also, the, the setting, the opening of the story also gently brings us into William's point of view, uh, which I think... Connolly does really well. We know that William has only heard of circuses. And, you know, as you pointed out, he was only technically at a circuit, at a circus once in utero, but there weren't clowns there. And, you know, does it really count? Is it really a circus without clowns? And this opening here, the opening of the story that's really about setting and character introduction, just ends with this simple phrase no clowns. And that's what lets us know, I think, that we're going to be in a scary clown story. And it really does a lot of tone setting uh, for the rest of the piece. And I think that that's a real masterstroke, just a, a very simple phrase to just, just kind of whip the story into shape in the mind of a reader. Yeah, this ringmaster character exists really only in this one scene. And he's here just to let the readers know that this is a a horror story and 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 not going to be a a wonder story it's a weird story not a wonder story that this isn't going to that this is definitely not going to be a story about how something really cool happens to William at the circus it's to let us know something really bad is going to happen and and that's it but again that's just an absolutely genius stroke here and and just phenomenal characterization where you can even though all you're doing is reading it on the page with some pretty spare uh, description of the way that the ringmaster is speaking still we know we know he's creepy we know he's creepy. <laughs> right. And, and, and I mean, part of that is, and we're going to be talking about how just it, how it is that Connolly uh, makes us creeped out in this story. But at least part of it is the way William thinks about clowns. And William thinks that, you know, clowns look like ordinary people most of the time until they put on their makeup and their big shoes and their funny wigs. Until they did that, there was no way of telling if they were clowns or not. Until they dressed up and made you laugh, they were just men, not clowns. And this is a, a little description we get in this story, and we're going to find out how true or not true that turns out to be. Right. Let's let's go do that now. And uh, yeah, it's the, the night of the circus, also William's 10th birthday. And 
When they arrive, the family wanders through the various sideshow activities, also the games, uh, those those types of carnival games, right, with prizes of giant stuffed animals that no one ever actually wins and, and that sort of thing. But they also wander through the area where the performers have their caravans. And William peers in through half-closed doors and open windows, and he catches sight of something that disturbs him. It's a fat man who is being bathed by a scantily clad woman who makes fairly direct eye contact with William before someone else he doesn't see closes the door. And William somehow feels like he's complicit in something bad here. And this is really great, I think, for setting the mood, even just at their arrival to the circus. But then as he and his family wander, William finds himself separated from his parents. And he finds himself back at the performers' caravans. I mean, inexplicably. He doesn't really know how he got there. But he finds a yellow tent with a red jalopy in front of it. Also, lots of balloons. And so he knows that he has found the clowns. And he discovers that he can peek into the tent by lying down uh, 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 on the ground, you know, right against the tent wall, looking through the gap at the bottom. And he's very, very interested in clowns, which we've, we've been getting already in the story. But so he definitely wants to watch the clowns, but he doesn't want to do it from you know, the, the doorway, from the entryway to this tent. And although these clowns do have their bright clothes and their big shoes on already, they are not yet in makeup. And so really, they just look like four bald men in silly clothes. But as he watches, one of the clowns begins to rub his face with a damp cloth. And now his face looks white and red, like a clown face, while the cloth is now covered in flesh-colored makeup. And just as William realizes that the clown face is the real face that has to be hidden, he hears the clown speaking a strange language. But even though it is strange, he can understand it. And that's not right. And here's what they say. Children. We hate them. Foul things. They laugh at what they doesn't understand. They laugh at things they should be afraid of. Oh, but we know. We know what the circus hides. We know what all circuses hide. Foul children. We make them laugh. But when we can, we take them. And just at that moment, William is grabbed by two clowns that he hadn't even noticed before. And uh, I think, Brandon, this is where I will pause just so we can take stock. But uh, also because this is exactly where there would be a commercial break if this were a TV show. It's exactly when he's grabbed, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's really amazing. I love the reversal here that clowns are clowns all the time and they only pretend to be men when they're forced to. And the scene where they take off their makeup here that you just uh, recapped, Glenn, to reveal the clown beneath, it's really unsettling and for some reason it reminds me of the way that uh that Roald Dahl sometimes depicted the the secret world of adults that still children stumble into by mistake in his books uh, just like maybe the scene in the witches for instance when all the women transform into their true selves and are just kind of letting loose and 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 feeling free as themselves and how they hate to pretend to be human but To me, what's most disturbing about this transformation scene is that William understands the secret language of the clowns. And it's just a wonderful dramatic reveal that serves the horror element of the story really well. And and all of that is kind of built on the back of what is a, a truly distressing scene of William wandering at the circus and losing his 
family. Connolly gives us the sense that behind all of the fun of the circus is something truly dark and unsavory. That peak behind the curtain is something no average person, you know, wants to even see or, or know about. This behind the scenes of the circus that William ends up in, it's really only there for the initiated. And all of this rot that lie, lays behind this the circus scene really starts to bleed through into the text. And Connolly makes us as readers feel like almost a sense of despair at the circus because there's people only losing games. No one wins prizes. I mean, you have to have some people win a prize in order to make the game scene appealing. But at this circus, like no one is winning any prizes. And it's this real efficiency of prose that just is astonishingly good that Connolly is so good at just with like two sentences making us feel despair. I mean, you should see one person with a stuffed animal, but William doesn't see anybody. Right. That certainly that's every circus or carnival that I've ever been to. Yeah. Somebody, somebody has to win, right? I mean, the house is going to win most of the time, but if you're going to keep people coming back, you've got to let them win sometimes, right? This is how casinos work too, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it's a great observation that that's not what this circus is up to. It's not what Circus Caliban is up to. And I wonder if we, you know, well, we can do this in the discussion part, although we're, we're close to the end here, you know, can think about what this circus is for, because we're really zoomed in at this point just on on the clowns, right? So we're going to learn about what the clowns are up to. But yeah, I have to wonder, like, what are the jugglers up to? Like, what is this circus? What is this whole circus for? Yeah, absolutely. We can we can ask that in the discussion for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's hurry up and get to that part here. So I'm going to take us home at this point. And yeah, we come back. William, he's been grabbed by two clowns and now they pin him down and the other clowns gather around and he sees their tongues. They're long and barbed. They lick his face for what seems like forever. And then suddenly they just stop. They pick him up and they show him his reflection in the mirror. And of course, right, as we expect, his face now looks like theirs. He looks like a clown and his hair is falling out. He whimpers that he wants his parents. But one of the clowns says that they are actually William's family now. They're his new family. And when William begs to know why they are doing this to him, the clown explains that they haven't done anything to him. They've just revealed who he is. Clowns are, clowns are chosen in the mother womb. Clowns do not become. Clowns just are. Clowns are born. And so now we get an epilogue. And we learn that, of course, the police came and they searched for William, but William was never found again. The circus Caliban left the next day. And when they performed again at the edge of a forest in a country far, far away, they had a new clown. A new clown smaller than the rest, and a new clown who seemed to be looking for his parents in the audience. And now I'm just going to read the closing paragraph of this story because it's so absolutely brilliant and no paraphrasing that I can do will we'll do <laughs> full justice to this. And his teeth fell out and were placed by sharp white hooks that were kept hidden behind shields of plastic. And his nails decayed to hard yellow stumps at the end of soft, pale fingers. He grew tall and strong until at last he forgot his name and became only Clown. And a great clown he was. His tongue grew like a snake's, and he tasted children with it as they laughed, for clowns are hungry and sad and envious of humanity. They travel from town to town, looking for those that they can steal away, always marking the child that kicks in the womb, and always finding him upon their return. For clowns are not made. Clowns are born. 
And that's the end of the story. Before we get this final line of the story, Clowns Are Born, uh, about a page before, there's a kind of soft ending to the story that ends with the phrase, clown is born. And, and Glenn, you, you read that, and it's amazing. And the real terror there in that moment, uh, the a page before the end of the story, is that isn't that strictly speaking a clown is born? We kind of get that weird reveal that like these are you know killer clowns from outer space or something <laughs> like that. It's that William wants his family but clearly cannot go back to them. And then we get this coda really at the end of the story, almost a second ending. That is this whole bit that you just read, Glenn, about how William is essentially kidnapped and his parents never hear from him again. And then you know William grows up into this clown where he becomes just like the other clowns kind of preying on children and looking for other or other clown children. So we get this horror at the end of the story. The, the horror element at the end of the story is another bit about child snatching in a sense, uh, or that your child isn't your real child or they belong to something other creature. And this is something that we saw in the new daughter. Now it's not really fair to compare these two stories or really take them even as a sample. Two stories does not a sample size make. And we'll come back in a moment uh, with our discussion that kind of incorporates what we've read uh, from Connolly before. Right, because before we get to that, just have a few things to say about the the network in in general. This episode is the second episode that Brandon and I are recording after a pretty long hiatus while Brandon was on parental leave. And what that means is that I have now uploaded the first story that we did after coming back. And I noticed that we've had a fairly significant increase in the number of downloads that our recent episodes are getting. I have no idea what has led to that, but we just wanted to take a second here to thank everyone who helps spread the word about our shows, the people who write reviews, who retweet and share on social media, uh, also who recommend us when people on social media are asking uh, about podcasts, looking for podcasts to listen to. Obviously, that work is really, really helping us reach new listeners, and we're so grateful for that. Yeah, thank you so much for getting the word out about the show. It's one of the things that uh, we can't always do. We have a limited reach. And so if our listeners help us out with that, it's massively helpful. Yeah, it's so awesome. So thanks so much for that. And hey, if you are new to the show, welcome. We're, we're so glad to have you here. But also, if you're new to the show, you might not know that this is only one of several shows that we do on the network. And we thought maybe we'd take some time over the, the next handful of shows to just give a little tour of the network. And today we'll highlight the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, which is you know exactly what it says on the box. <laughs> Brandon and I are going through the short stories and novels of Gene Wolfe in chronological order in essentially the same format as this show, which means that you don't have to have read the story to get something out of the episode because we are going to tell you everything about it. And people, I think, do tend to consider Gene Wolfe as really a, a fantasy writer, but his magnum opus really draws on the sword and sorcery tradition and I think would have been right at home being serially published in Weird Tales alongside Lovecraft and Howard. Wolfe's novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, is really one of the best weird fiction novels ever written. And so really, he overlaps with the content, the types of stories that we cover on this show a lot. And I love The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I think that's a great way to get into Gene Wolfe. But I think if you're looking for a jumping on point just to check out our show without ever having read any Gene Wolf and without reading any, you know, just in order to listen to us, I think that I would probably recommend his story, The Hero as Werewolf, which we did two episodes on. But Brandon, I wonder what you would recommend as a jumping on point for, for listeners. 
I think listeners of Elder Sign also would really enjoy The Hero is Werewolf. I was going to recommend that. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> kind of horror story with a lot of weird elements to it. But also, um, Silhouette is a great choice, too. It's a space horror story. So I really think that people interested in horror and the weird, uh, people who come to this podcast for that, yeah, Hero of Werewolf. Hero is Werewolf is a great choice, but so is Silhouette, which has a lot of the elements, I think, that um, you'd find in a more contemporary science fiction, horror, weird novel or novella. Yeah, Silhouette is awesome. I mean, it opens with an, an epigram from Ambrose Bierce, who's you know one of the great weird fiction writers, although also someone perhaps shamefully actually missing from our coverage here on this show. So something that uh, we will need to correct at some point. But uh, yeah, let's get back into the story at hand here, back into Some Children Wander by Mistake and get into the discussion, Brandon. Where do you want to take us first? Well, I want to I wanna start at the end of the story here for our discussion. And we talked about how we've, yes, we've only read The New Girl before, which is also about uh, kind of the horror that comes with feeling your child is not your child or that they've been taken and replaced by something else. The end of this story uh, also really leans into that. And I wonder, Glenn, then, if you felt that this coda was really necessary for the story, does it add to the horror? Or do you feel that the story would be stronger if it ended with the clown simply saying, clown is born, the page before Yes, that's a great question. I think there's an implicit premise in the way that you you asked that question, though, Brandon, which is that playing up the horror is, uh, you, I think, something that you you think is 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 strong. So if we did end it without this coda, I think the horror of the story is really what gets emphasized more strongly. And so you would close the pages on this, thinking that was a a horror story that made me afraid of clowns or exacerbated the, <laughs> the innate fear of clowns that all right-thinking people have, right? But I think that what Connolly has done with this coda is reinforce that the, the mood of this story is less horror and more this despair you were talking about, right? That this is not a story about how horrifying it is to be kidnapped by clowns, but how sad it is to be kidnapped by clowns. I think you're right. That's a great point. The despair is really a big part of this story. William feels nothing but despair pretty much from the time he's 10 years old on, right? He's bullied. He wishes he could see a circus. He doesn't know if he fits in anywhere. I mean, it's your classic sort of young boy, like, I'm different than everybody. Why don't I have friends? I need to find my people type of tale. And then he finds his people and they're they're monsters. And it turns out he's a secret monster, but now he wants to be a normal boy again. And so I, I think you're right to point out that, that maybe Connolly is really going for this sense of despair in this story. But I want to zoom out for a second here because you mentioned that all uh, right-thinking people have an innate fear of clowns. <laughs> Are you or have you ever been afraid of clowns? Let's just get this on the table here and now. So I am not actually all that afraid of clowns, but <laughs> the, the the TV miniseries It from, I guess that was the early 1990s probably was terrifying to me. Right around that same time, I did also watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which also was terrifying. So I, I didn't have a fear of clowns until fiction told me I should have one. Uh, and it's not a strong fear, but I'm definitely, I, you know, if I go to the circus, I, I'll, I'll go avoid the clowns. I will avoid the clowns. That's what I'll say. How about you? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's right to kind of avoid 
clowns. I, I think they're inherently creepy. I'm not actually afraid of clowns, nor have I ever been. I mean, that's not like a big, brave saying. It's just, right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Growing up in my house, we had this large photographic print of a clown that seemed to like move around the house of its own accord. But even <laughs> then, the, it wasn't the clown that was scary. It was just the fact that you never know what corner of the basement or attic it would be in if you were up there or downstairs looking for something. I don't know. Yes, I grew up with a haunted picture of a clown, I guess. But I've never been scared of clowns. But this is all going somewhere. I still found this story to be extraordinarily creepy. And I thought it might be a really good exercise for us in thinking about this story to consider how John Connolly is able to keep us creeped out as readers when he's writing about a subject that neither of us really find too scary or one that, Glenn, I think you so aptly pointed out, we're taught to be afraid of just as a horror trope. So what jumped out to you as primarily creepy in in this story, Glenn? How did John Connolly creep you out? Well, I, I'll go back to something I, I said during the recap, which is that for me, this character of the ringmaster serves as kind of a storyteller here, as kind of a, a narrator with in, embedded within the story, right? That, um, I don't know, it's kind of like Rod, Rod Serling sort of showing up to let us know what this Twilight Zone episode is going to be about. I kind of <laughs> felt like the ringmaster was doing that sort of thing. And he, you know, as soon as we encounter the ringmaster and hear him give this, this monologue about how, you know, little kids need to come to the circus, and of course there are clowns, he could just... For me, that was a moment of transition from learning about William's daily life, seeing this as kind of a bit of a, a school story, getting it at certainly to be some kind of coming of age story into something that was definitely going to be creepy, that was going to have clowns at, at the heart of it. And so, you know, it's it's having this character embedded in the story who gives us that information without having to do that explicitly, just through the the, the tone or the, the characterization of this ringmaster. To me, that was just absolutely brilliant storytelling. Like, I don't know how Connolly did that, but but somehow he he did. He told me everything about the story without telling me anything about the story. And it worked on me on such a, a subconscious and emotional level while reading the story. Part of what works so well about that scene is the way that the other characters in the scene, which there's a, a dwarf and a strong man, that they all seem to be doing the wrong things. And then you know, so the dwarf is climbing the ladder and trying to hang up the flyers. The strong man is holding the ladder. It could easily be the other way around since anybody can stabilize a ladder, really. And maybe a dwarf <laughs> isn't the best choice of person to get things up high. So there's this sense of, I don't know, topsy-turviness here of, of things being upside down. But when William starts asking about clowns, everybody kind of pauses and looks at him. And you just get this sense that... There's something about asking about clowns that's almost taboo, but the ringleader is forced to kind of give the boy these tickets. There's just something unsettling about that scene. And I think it goes to what you suggested we talk about here in the dis discussion, which is the purpose of the circus at all. The story kind of ends with the sense that the purpose of the circus is for clowns to find other clowns, right? Uh, and that everybody's there kind of at the, I don't know, at the, at the whim of the clowns. Like 10 years ago, they marked the boy and now they're back to collect him. Uh, what, what was your sense of why this circus exists 
And, you know, does that play into the sense of creepiness in the story? Yeah. One of the things that happens here, something I, I left out of the recap, is that when they get to the circus, William realizes that the tickets that they were given by the ringmaster are a different color than the tickets that everyone else is holding. And he doesn't see any other tickets with his color. And I think that this this pausing, everybody pausing in their work of hanging up these posters to focus on William when he asks about the clowns, uh, you know, I have the real sense that they know that they have discovered the person that they're back in this town for, that you know, there's some mystical way, in numinous way, supernatural way that they know that uh, you know they had found him in utero uh, 10 years ago and that they have come back, not looking generically for kids to take, but that they've come back to find the kid they know is here and now they also know that they have found him and they give him this like literal mark, right? This colored, this colored ticket, this specially colored ticket for that. And so, yeah, I think that all supports the idea, certainly, that this is perhaps what the circus is for solely. This might be the only purpose for this is that this is how clowns uh, find each other, how clowns continue, also how they get food, we're, we're told as well. But that had me wondering then, like, if that's the case, right, there certainly are all these other uh, components to the circus, the people running the games, other sideshows, and so on, certainly going to be other acts within the circus itself. Is everybody at the circus actually a clown, just in human makeup? Or are there other, or or is it maybe that there are other types of monsters or, you know, baddies in some, in some way or, you know, or something like that? I guess that was really kind of the question I was, I was thinking about is how, how urban fantasy is the circus? I'm, Glad that Connolly doesn't go deep into uh, a type of horror carnival urban fantasy situation here. But I think you're right to ask the question of whether or not it's all monsters. Certainly that scene of the man in the tub and the like young girl bathing him and the sense of violation that William feels when witnessing this maybe gives us the sense that everything behind the scenes of the circus is is off on some level. So I think you can kind of fill that in with whatever makes sense to you as a reader. Um, I, I didn't really consider it to be monsters. I just, I wondered what Connolly was doing with that, with that scene uh, of, of the man in the tub um, and William's sense of violation, but it might be that he's just beginning to witness how everything is kind of monstrous or a little perverted or a little evil behind the scenes of the circus. And now he's going to be initiated into that. So I don't know, is that kind of the sense that you got as well, Glenn? Absolutely. I mean, I think the the circus here, right? In in this business with yeah, this business with with peering into the 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 carnival workers uh, caravans uh, is a way of showing us that the circus itself is actually kind of makeup that the performers are are putting on, right? The individual performers put on costumes, put on makeup to do their acts and so on. But that the circus itself is actually a kind of mask, a kind of makeup that if you peel that back, if you take that off, what you see behind is actually fairly grotesque and and horrifying and just unseemly. So just to continue on with this, Brandon, the idea of what you know, what what else is happening at this circus. I mean, who is the ringmaster? What is what is the ringmaster? Is he just a regular person who owns a circus? But part of owning a circus is that you you know the secret that clowns are monsters and you need to do things <laughs> to get new clowns. And so it's just uh, a really horrifying part of this business that you've got. Or 
is is there something more sinister, even more sinister than that, that the ringmaster is up to, do you think? And and just to be clear here, I can't get out of my head just the way that this also makes me feel about Ray Bradbury's circus novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah, I think Connolly is really drawing on a lot of great other stories here in this story. I get the sense that one of the th- things that works so well about this story, one of the things that really creeps me out is if you think that the clowns are really the ones who are driving the decisions of where the carnival goes, where it performs, how long they stay there, uh, all that sort of stuff, that it's leaning into an inmates running the asylum sort of trope. And that that's what's that's an element of the story that's just so unsettling. And so the ringleader's not really the one in charge. The clowns are, but they need this huge apparatus around them to to blend into society, to continue to do what they do, which is prey on children, essentially. And so uh, that that that's what I think is going on here. I don't think there's something more sinister than that. That's just about as sinister as you can as you can get to build an apparatus around. Uh, a need to prey upon children. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And and so then perhaps I wonder, right, sort of my my head about how this circus works. Perhaps is that everyone at the circus actually is someone who's been abducted by the clowns. They just aren't all actually clowns, but they sometimes abduct other children and raise them in this circus, such that they grow up to be, you know, the strong man or the the ringmaster or something something like that. That's entirely possible. Uh, it's not in the text, but I think this, this is a, this is a story that invites a lot of imagination and a lot of kind of playfulness because it's so well done. But I think we're probably finished with our discussion about this story for today. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And uh, that includes the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, which we hope you will check out. And if you would like to support the network and get access to dozens of bonus episodes, including more John Connolly, I hope you'll support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Next time, we'll be back with The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft. And yeah, you should absolutely check us out at the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast as well. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.